You're listening to Ideas on Europe, a podcast by UACES, the Membership Association for Contemporary European Studies. Today we're delighted to be speaking to Cherry James, author of a new book in the Routledge UACES Contemporary European Studies series. The book explores the impact of the Erasmus Study Abroad scheme on citizenship, nation building and identity in the EU. Cherry is Senior Lecturer at the Law Department at London South Bank University, as well as being a qualified solicitor. Welcome Cherry. Thank you. To start off, can you give listeners a brief summary about the Erasmus Study Abroad programme? Well, the um, Erasmus Student Mobility Programme is now probably regarded as the flagship of the EU's involvement in higher education. But in the first few years, in fact, a couple of decades of uh, the existence of the community, which was the precursor to the EU, there was really very little involvement um, of the EU in education. Um, And in fact, there was no initial competence in the field of education in the original Treaty of Rome. But things changed over the years. And in the 1970s, right from 1971, the uh, ministers of education of the member states met informally and just discussed matters of education and uh, produced sort of um, recommendations and that kind of thing. And then in 1976, they started, they they introduced what were called action programmes for joint study visits, which was very much a sort of embryonic precursor of the Erasmus programme. And then it was really in the 1980s that that there started to be a a proper focus on something like the Erasmus programme. The 80s were the period that were uh, largely known as uh, the period of Eurosclerosis, and there was concern that the community was seen as very distant from its citizens. So the Adenino Committee, the Committee for a People's Europe, or uh, as it's known in French, um, pour les citoyennes, the citizens of Europe, was established under the chairmanship of Pietro Adenino, who was an Italian politician. Um, And that was really tasked with the job of trying to identify some initiatives which would bring the people of Europe closer to uh, the institutions and to the idea of the community as it was at at the time. And one of the ideas which certainly took wings was to build upon the 1976 um, joint uh, study programmes, the action programmes, and to establish a much more comprehensive uh, student mobility programme. And I mean, I won't go into the, the kind of the legal technicalities of the establishment, because those were rather fraught and have been written about uh, excellently elsewhere. But in 1987, so now 32 years ago, the Erasmus Student Mobility Programme was established. And the basic idea is that uh, students who are registered in a university, a higher education institution in any of the EU member states and in fact a few others, the EEA states and now the candidate countries, may spend either one semester or one academic year in another EU higher education institution in another country. And uh, the idea is that they can study and they can gain credits uh, which count towards their home university degree. Um, and they will be supported in so doing with all sorts of concessions as to fees and assistance with um, maintenance support. So there's a very established framework 
So students are operating within a framework, they get some money, they don't have to pay fees where they go, and it is the path is smoothed as much as possible. And as I say, they are meant to earn the credits at the host institution, which will count towards their degree in their home country. And what motivated you to write this book? Why is now an important time to take stock of whether and how Erasmus makes a difference to those three elements you identify, citizenship? nation building and identity? Well, when I started doing um, my PhD, upon which this book was based, I had no idea that now we were going to be sitting with what I regard as the sort of Damocles of Brexit hanging over us. You know, that was barely a scintilla in anybody's uh, in, in anybody's eye. So when I started, it was simply interest in student mobility, in the concept of EU citizenship. There's been a, such a, a long line of really interesting case law trying to establish what EU citizenship is because it is delineated so briefly in the treaties. Very little is said about it. And so really the flesh has had to be put on the bones by Court of Justice decisions. And a lot of those are very interesting. And I suppose over the years I'd followed those. And then, as it were, sort of intersecting with that, I became interested in the potential of Erasmus student mobility. And I'm not quite sure how, but at South Bank I started getting involved with the Erasmus student programme and I was asked to to look after the relatively small number of students that we have in the law division from other universities and very much enjoyed that and I knew some students who went out to other universities. I also became involved here with working in partnership with various other universities and I began to really think about the, the potential and the possibilities afforded by students and in fact staff but particularly students going and spending time in in other countries in other universities and wondering you know what it was like and then really I think the catalyst that made me decide to focus on this for my PhD and I knew I was interested roughly in the area of EU citizenship it was the statement that I kept coming across that Erasmus makes European citizens which is something actually that Jan Figel, who was a commissioner, said in, I think it was 2009 or thereabouts, um, might have been 2007, I'm not sure, in a speech uh, to celebrate Erasmus. And I thought, what an interesting idea. And I began to be aware that this kind of idea appears in quite a lot of the material about Erasmus. And obviously, you know, it's a rhetorical statement, but I began to wonder about it and wonder what substance it had behind it. And when thinking then about how in the days of the sort of establishment of of the nation state, the development of citizenship was regarded as something very important in building people who had that link to that nation state. And so it started, I started really to, to wonder to what extent it was possible for students going from one university to another in the EU to be somehow part of the very interesting and multifaceted development of EU citizenship, especially as in the days of the sort of establishment of the um, nation state and in the 19th century, universities were regarded as very important places for cultivating citizens, really on the basis that be cultivating people who were active citizens, 
who uh, discussed and talked about and learned to communicate and interact with each other and talk about important matters. And I just wondered whether, in some way, that concept was able to be projected into the sort of larger scale transnational citizenship, which admittedly is a very different sort of citizenship, of the EU. And so that's really that's really how it came about. But I, I would say really from that statement that I just came across and it stuck in my mind that Erasmus makes European citizens. And I thought that's worth finding out about. So then how did you find this out? What range of students did you talk to and what kind of questions were you asking them? Were you focusing on this current Erasmus generation only? I was really focusing on the current Erasmus generation because I thought it probably, my project had to be at least manageable. So I focused really over a period of about six months, I think I did all the interviews, on students who either were Erasmus students at that time or had been within the previous year. So yes, it was that current Erasmus generation. What I decided to do, obviously I had to think quite carefully, do I try to do some sort of massive survey? Because there are some massive surveys around that the Commission does about Erasmus students. And of course there are now, there have been thousands of them. So, you know, you can do a sort of a statistical survey. And I decided, you know, to some extent that has has already been done and I didn't really want to to do that I wanted to talk to the students which means really you talk to rather fewer of them but you talk in some depth effectively what I did was just to sort of identify an initial pool of students who either had been here or who I knew just by contacts and by asking academics in other universities who had been abroad and who'd been where. Um, I was quite lucky in that actually I was able to travel to, I travelled to Croatia, I travelled to Hungary, I travelled to Germany, to the Netherlands. And so I was able to interview students in all of those countries. And of course, they had been to a wide range of places themselves. And in some of those countries at the time, there were Erasmus students from other universities. So although I, mean, I probably travelled, I think, say half a dozen countries, something like that. But I actually managed to talk to students who had either been to or were from really quite a lot of the EU member states. Not absolutely everyone, but quite a range sort of north, middle, south, etc. And from the different types of universities. I have to admit that there is a, a, a sort of bias in the sample that I had, in that they all had to be able to speak English well enough to be talked to by me, because I don't speak any other language well enough to, to interview in another language. That is um, a sort of inbuilt uh, bias. And what I decided to do was to a sort of semi-structured interviews. So I had a, a you know, a sort of a pro forma of, uh, of, of questions, but I also just let the conversation roam um, and that turned out to be, you know, much the most, um, well, I think probably the most interesting, but also the most um, productive. And I sent them all a sort of a basic questionnaire before I actually met with them. And I have to say that I talked to them, I mean, this was slightly varying amounts of time, but probably on, on average, maybe 50 minutes an hour or so with each of them. And so um, recorded their interviews, had masses of transcripts um, to analyse. And what a wealth of information. It was exceptionally enjoyable. So what were some of your key findings? You talk about the significance of language in Erasmus. Yes, and that, yes it's, it's, that's very interesting because um, 
you know, as you'll probably um, be aware, um, understandably, one of the benefits of going on Erasmus, which is hotly promoted by the um, EU, is to boost your language skills. And in fact, they quite strongly encourage students to learn another language when they um, go abroad. There are sort of two points that I suppose to make about that. One is, of course, that the EU is officially multilingual. It has fought and fought against the idea of saying that, that some languages are more important than others. And I mean, there are sound cultural reasons for doing that. But it has led to a degree, I think, of unreality in some of their language policies, not least that instead of perhaps prioritising a few languages so that people are encouraged to acquire fluency in languages and be able to communicate in those, there is a sort of feeling that translation is the language of the EU. And it's all fine, we've all got lots of languages and we're all, translation will, will get us through and one knows that the limitations even of the best translation. The other point I would make is that it's one thing sending students to Finland or Hungary or places where the chances of them having learnt any of that language before are remote and saying we will fund you know a three-week pre-semester language course for you that's great that probably enables them to survive in the supermarket in the cafes but the idea which is you know actually touted in the Erasmus literature that this is really going to mean that they can actually go and study some university level modules in that is um, well something that let's say um, the students themselves do not buy so whilst you know, pre-semester language courses were regarded as, as, as beneficial for the reasons that, that I mentioned the students themselves were pretty clear that they were going abroad to brush up their language skills in a major European language English being regarded as something which, particularly if they came from a country where the first language was lesser known, they really needed to have fluency in to succeed in today's and tomorrow's world. But also we had to do that some students were studying in German or in Spanish. Again, those are major languages. So regardless of their destination, they saw Erasmus as an opportunity to brush up on those languages. They did really. And I mean, I would you know cite the example of one student, one very dedicated student who went from Hungary to study in Poland. And I said to her, um, so why did you choose Poland? And she said, so I could improve my English. And, of course, slightly sadly, the answer to the question, why did you not go to the UK, was it's just simply too expensive. Um, She could envisage making her Erasmus grant stretch to cover life in Poland, but even the higher level grant that she would get in the UK was, you know, just going to be, um, it was going to be sort of impossible. Similarly, a Dutch student I came across went to Sweden. You know, Sweden, it's a great place. All my media courses were in English. So that that was, you know, really the students were making their own choices there. And I think that the commission's avowed policies of, of multilingualism were regarded as, to say irrelevant is probably pushing it, but some students probably would have said that, but um, at any rate, wildly over-optimistic. So despite that not fitting into the uh, commission's stated aims of mm. the language aspect of the programme, do you think that makes them more or less part of some kind of European identity? I think it means that 
It is simply the way in which they do interact, because the working towards a European identity means, requires, interaction with other people. Now, frankly, if they interact and communicate in a language that they share, then that bonding, that cultural awareness, that joint identity can be built up. I don't honestly think it matters. I think... I mean, I think really what my conclusion was that, yes, to some extent, the Erasmus aspirations were being met, but in a somewhat different way from that envisaged by the, by the Commission, really. Can you tell us one of your unexpected findings from your research? Certainly. Um, I think one of the things that I was very interested to find out, and what actually was one of the benefits of just doing a sort of semi-structured interview so the students were able to, as it were, sort of wander in what they told me was the significant impact of their living arrangements. If I go back to um, my sort of initial hypothesis that really, well, following what um, Jürgen Habermas has suggested, that citizenship can be created by communication and interaction in a public space, I found that um, the students were telling me that sometimes the way they were accommodated assisted and sometimes it significantly inhibited the kind of interactions they were able to make. And it's as simple, really, as the fact that because Erasmus students are often only there for one semester, sometimes they're there for a year, but it suits the university accommodation agencies or authorities often to house them all together and to house them quite separately sometimes from the regular, what I might call the regular students at that university. Um, and that could mean that you had, I mean, I had one Dutch student who said, you know, I'm sharing flat with six other Dutch students or something like that, which was you know, very nice, but it wasn't really what I was expecting. You're expecting a little bit more internationalism in all of this. And in one particular place where I interviewed a few students in in Germany, the building in which the international students were housed was a good two and a half miles outside the town, so you know, a bus ride away. And so the social focus tended to be there, whereas the um, German students would tend to be living actually in the town. So there was quite a degree of separation. That was sometimes ameliorated by some, I think, far-sighted arrangements that were put in place. For example, I talked to one student, in fact, at that particular university, one British student who'd been there, who had actually looked through quite carefully the accommodation brochure, whatever it was, and had wondered about this and thought, not so much, I don't want just to be with international students, but she actually thought, I don't really want to be in that block two and a half miles from the centre of town. So she put as her preference somewhere that was much uh, more central and was put into a block that was much more central, where in each of the flats in the block, there was one room that was kept vacant each semester for an Erasmus student. So she was living with four or five, I can't remember which, um, uh, German students, and she was the Erasmus student in that flat. That proved to be a much more um, positive experience from the point of view of making the local friends and uh, integration. And she was, you know, one or other of them, you know, took them to her family home and all this kind of thing. And that a sort of very basic arrangement makes makes a, a lot of difference, really. So accommodation arrangements appeared to be. Um, key and a bit if they could be a little bit more thoughtful about mingling the students then you've got obviously a lot of um, rather better um, sort of interaction between different groups of students or Erasmus students and some of the local students 
The other thing I found was that quite often it wasn't really the case that students were able to, as was advertised in advance, select from any particular list of, of modules. They were often given access to lists of modules before they went. They might have had to put them on their forms that they were interested in X, Y and Z. They might get there and either find that all of those places had been taken by local students or, in fact, that in universities where there were really quite a lot of Erasmus students, that there was really, as it were, sort of teaching you know, German in a foreign language uh, classes that were being run, and they were more or less expected to just to take. They, they didn't have to, but there was an expectation that it was much easier for them to enrol on these, these classes that were frankly set up just for them which probably were you know, quite useful from the point of view of language and probably, um, and I think, to be honest, were probably designed to be relatively straightforward to pass, but did have the disadvantage that the students in the classes were all the international students and were not the local students. And so, again, you just didn't get that mingling or go for coffee before or after class with the local students. So, there's the sort of basic practical arrangements of accommodation and how the teaching arrangements were organised was was a, a bit of a, a bit of a surprise, I think, and how much difference it made to to the experience. And certainly, I think one of the things I very strongly counsel anybody going on Erasmus is particularly, I think, to investigate in as much depth as possible what the accommodation possibilities are, because. It was something that a lot of the students I spoke to either mentioned that they were pleased how it had worked out or more often said, well, if I had known, I would have tried to be in some sort of different arrangement or something. So then getting to the crux of the book, what, if any, sort of citizenship do you think is developed by Erasmus based on your findings? Well, that's, obviously, yes, is the very interesting question. And I spent, well, to be honest, years wondering is it EU citizenship? Is it European citizenship? European citizenship, obviously not being a strict legal concept, not having those tightly defined treaty law boundaries that EU citizenship most certainly does, um, and which are policed very carefully by all the legislation and the Court of Justice um, decisions. European citizenship being a term that is used much more widely by the Council of Europe to do with things like human rights and in respect of all sorts of, as it were, sort of warm notions of being European. And I did spend a long time trying to work work this one out. There were some aspects of Erasmus student mobility that made me think that what was really being developed is, as it were, a sort of more broadly, broad brush and softly focused European citizenship, not least because you actually don't have to be an EU citizen to participate in Erasmus. What you actually have to be is registered as a student at an Erasmus university, which as it well actually doesn't even have to be an EU university. So at one stage, I did wonder whether it was, as it were, simply that this um, large and more general concept of European citizenship, which was actually being developed. But really, what made me decide that, no, it was possible to say that Erasmus contributes to EU citizenship was really the, the fact that it started out as a polity creation project. It was really from those concerns in the 1980s 
that there was no, no such thing as a European polity, a European people, and that there was the much-wanted democratic deficit in the EU, and that people were not interested in you know, anything, in actually participation in the European project. That's really what initially drove the whole idea of the of the Erasmus programme. And if you think about it, you know, if we think of conceptualised citizenship as something that can be created by communication and interaction, really one, what one is talking about is, as it were, democratic participation. So one comes back to the political citizenship, and the political citizenship is the EU citizenship. You know, you're either an EU citizen and can participate in its democratic structures, or you're or you're not. The other thing which I think supported me in that final view is the centrality of the right of free movement. You know, as you know, I think it will be fair to say the right of free movement is uh, regarded by certainly most EU citizens as being the core of their EU citizenship. And of course, it predates EU citizenship. And talking to all these students, that was the way in which they saw themselves as having, uh, as, as their EU citizens, that, that was really the, 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 the sort of possibility that they saw their EU citizenship as presenting them with, that they could, if they wanted to do, go and study and work, maybe do master's degrees and then get a job in other EU countries, which the friends they'd made from Kazakhstan, say, in, a, in their university, were less, um, decidedly less able to do. So it's seemed to me that um, Erasmus was making them very conscious of this right, of the fact that they were utilising this right, of the fact that they could go on in the future to utilise this right of free movement. And that right of free movement, it attaches to EU citizenship. It is really the other side of the, almost the other side of the coin. So that, I think, was probably the other, the other point that made me think, I think one can say that the Erasmus student mobility does make a contribution to EU citizenship rather than the much more general term, um, European citizenship. How do you think Brexit will affect the Erasmus programme? It's a million-dollar question at the moment, isn't it? And it's one which, uh, when I started my research, I say I had no idea I was going to have to consider. There are really, as we know, there are two possibilities, that we leave without a deal or that we leave with a deal. I mean, I'm leaving aside the possibility that we could remain. However, you know, at, at, at the moment, I just think that that is, that is probably unlikely. If we leave with a deal, then if we leave with a deal, something like the current withdrawal agreement then Erasmus is pretty safe both ways, UK to EU, EU to UK, up to the end of 2020. And thereafter, it is one of the many topics that needs to be discussed as part of the future relationship. And there have been a few, you know, um, glancing references to it in some of the discussions, but really it just isn't, doesn't seem to be very near the top of the priority list at all, unfortunately, um, in the discussions. One can only hope that going forward there will be a possibility of uh, taking it further. Indeed, the Erasmus programme itself, um, the, the EU, as you probably know, it's, it, it has budgetary, um, several years of um, with a budgetary programme, and we're coming to the end of the current one, the 2014 to the 2021. And for the new one, the, 20, the one starting in 2021, the regulation which has been proposed to take Erasmus forward actually has um, a very generous 
provisions about how any country in the world could henceforth be a full programme member of Erasmus, provided they pay into the system. And it has been suggested that that has been put there partly to keep the door open to the UK actually continuing to belong in a full as a full programme member. Now that would be, if Brexit has to happen, the perhaps the best outcome. But it is by no means um, for sure. Now, if we actually end up leaving at the end of October, fortunately, both the UK and the EU have said that um, certainly up to the end of 2020, that Erasmus will continue as it does at the moment and that anybody who is applying for funding and all that kind of thing, it's, it's all going to be fine for up to then. And after that, it's just anybody's, it's anybody's guess. There has been talk, but it's pretty speculative in the UK government, about either setting up their own kind of student mobility programme, which could cover countries across the world, or even just, that is possibly more likely, given how busy the government is going to be, actually just saying to universities, go ahead, set up your own bilateral agreements with each other which in difficult times becomes tricky. There will be some, there already are. Many universities do have bilateral agreements with universities in other countries, but it means that the programme becomes that much more limited. It means that there isn't a, there is unlikely to be additional funding to facilitate these you know, exchanges. And one of the great things about the Erasmus system is that it does open up the possibility of international study to students for whom it just is very difficult unless they get this non-means tested funding. And one wonders whether if that is not available, then the pool of students who are likely to go becomes an awful lot more limited. So it is something which will end up being discussed. I think it would be a tragedy if the UK fell out of the Erasmus programme. There are, as I say, precedents for countries which are not EU member states to be programme members, though the only states which are not EU member or states or EEA member states are those who are heading towards, hoping to head towards membership of the EU rather than busily heading away from it. So, you know, this would be um, a different uh, situation. But it is, it's very uncertain after, really, the next 18 months or so. Assuming some listeners are embarking on their Erasmus programmes in the next year or so, what kind of advice would you give them to get the most out of that experience socially and academically? I would say um, definitely go. I would say make sure that you look into the accommodation arrangements in advance, see the extent to which you get some sort of choice and see if you can be accommodated in places where some of the local students live. I would say if you're going to a country where you are less familiar with the language, investigate whether there are um, some pre-semester language courses and go and do those, you know, generally for two or three weeks um, beforehand. I would say take Every opportunity that is that is available. Some of the universities have excellent Erasmus societies, which put on all sorts of trips in this, particularly in the first few weeks. And those can be anything from incredibly practical trips, like a trip to IKEA, through to subsidised skiing trips and all sorts of, of, of things like that. And I would say also investigate very carefully 
the particular transport discounts that you may be entitled to in that particular country. In many European countries, certainly Germany, has some absolutely wonderful travel discounts, both for students individually, but also travelling in small groups. And that, you know, utilising those over a weekend can mean that you really, really um, see the country in a way that, you know, you just, you would just never be able to do otherwise, I think. And finally, if there are students out there thinking about pursuing research pertaining to the topics of identity and citizenship and how higher education impacts on that, do you have any top tips, reading suggestions? Or Certainly. I mean, I think that um, there, are, there are a number of people um, writing in this area. I would say anything written by Michael Dugan from Liverpool is always worth uh, reading. He's writing a lot now. Um, specifically on Brexit, but historically he's written a lot about students in higher education in Europe, and it is just always incredibly thought-provoking and very sound and very, very um, well worth reading. Likewise, anything by Sasha Garben, who has written a magisterial tome on um, higher education in the EU, and more on the policy side, material written by Anne Corbett, looking more at the uh, at student mobility as a sociological phenomenon, which it, it is really. There's a super book written by Elizabeth Murphy Lejeune about uh, student mobility in Europe. I think those are some of the uh, authors I found myself coming back to time and time again. And all of them, of course, will have lots of references in them. So, um, you know, you can sort of take it, uh, take it from there. But it's a very enjoyable subject. And if you're researching actually with students, you are researching and talking to them, but I think at a threshold moment in their lives, and you really, you know, you feel very privileged with them opening up to you. And you're, you know, you're talking to them about their, very much they live in the present, but obviously they've got very much an eye on the future. And they are the future. And that's what makes it such an interesting area in which to research, really. So, Cherry James's book, Citizenship, Nation Building and Identity in the EU, is available in the Routledge UAC's Contemporary European Studies series. Cherry, thank you so much for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you. For more UAC's podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.